lot. Get her done. How many of you have um, read Steve Thompson's book, uh, You May All Prophesy? Isn't that the name of the book? Yeah. How many of you read that book? We use it in our school of ministry and have for years and years. And uh, years ago, uh, I remember um, the very first time um, I'd ever seen anyone equip someone in the prophetic was at Morningstar. And you, were, we were, you guys were doing a conference, and we had, they did breakout sessions, and they were teaching us how to prophesy. And I'm like, oh, you teach people how to do that. Well, that's pretty amazing. And so that was my introduction to, we had a prophetic team, but was like, I didn't understand exactly how you can instruct people to do that. And then we started reading Steve Thompson's book and, and uh, Larry Randolph's book. And uh, that was kind of our introduction to equipping people in prophetic ministry. So I'd really encourage you to get that book. Um, we use it in our first year school of ministry. It's one of our school ministry books. And did you bring any of those books here? Oh, good. So, all right. All right. How many of you guys are here tonight? I know, at prophetic conferences, you can be present and not be here, if you know what I mean. Or be here and not be present, depending on how you look at it. Let me give a couple of things away. This is called Living from Eternity. And how many of you know that it's not your circumstances, but your stances that dictate your destiny? And uh, we're seated in heavenly places. Do you, you realize that you have dual citizenship? You're, you, you're actually, you're a citizen of earth and you're a citizen of heaven. That's why Paul argued that he was a Roman citizen. You have dual citizenship. The question is, are you living from heaven towards earth or from earth towards heaven? If you're living from earth towards heaven, you're always living a reactionary life, aren't you? I mean, all, your prayer life is always about what's already happened. But if, you're living, if you're, but if you're living from heaven towards earth, then you're living, then you're living a powerful life, and your prayers become prophetic declarations, and your words become worlds. You co-create with God. And so, um, who would like to have this, living from eternity? It's awesome. It's for sale in the back there. You want to give these? Come, woman. That felt powerful for a minute. It's called uh, Unchained Malady, and it's the supernatural power of forgiveness. You know, the, uh, when Jesus talked about if two of you agree upon earth as to touching anything, if you look at the context, he's actually talking about agreeing about somebody who you'd bring. You know, if somebody offends you, you, you go to them. If they don't repent, you bring somebody else with them, I mean, with you, and go to them. If they don't repent, you bring them before the church. If they don't repent, you treat them as a Gentile, as an unbeliever. And then he says, if two of you agree upon earth as to touching anything, the word agree, there's the word symphonia. We get our word symphony from it. And here's, here's what he's saying. If somebody won't repent, then you treat them like a Gentile. The next verse, he says, then if you agree upon earth as to two of you agree upon earth as to touching anything, it will be done for them. And then the next verse, Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive? So Jesus, in agreement, he's, talk, he's still talking about forgiveness. And what he's saying is, if you can't get somebody... If you can't get somebody to forgive you who's offended you or vice versa, you bring somebody with you, you've, you've, you've uh, brought them before the elders, you bring them before the church, and you can't get them, 
You can't, you, know, you can't get them to move. You can't get them to forgive you. You can't get them unoffended. Then you treat them as an unbeliever. And then he says, if two of you agree upon earth as to touching anything, it will be done for them for my father. What's he saying? He's saying, if you can't get them to forgive you by, through going to them, then what I want you to do is treat them like someone that you have no relationship with and forgive them even though they don't deserve it. That's why the next verse, Peter says, well, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, seven times 70. And then we have the, we have the, uh, we have the story about the king who forgave the guy who owed him like a million bucks. Remember that? And then his friend owed him 10000 or something, and he wouldn't forgive him. He threw him in prison. Remember this whole story? It's Matthew 18. And then, uh, and then, he, and then the king hears about it and says, listen, what, what are you doing? I forgave you a million dollars. And you don't want to forgive your friend 10000 And he says he threw him into prison. Remember, the, parab- the, the story starts like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a man, a king, who had servants. And then it finishes with, this, with these last two verses. And the, and the king threw him into prison, and the tormentors tormented him until he paid the last cent. And the last verse reads like this. So shall my heavenly Father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to be in relationship. I want closure. I'd like you, I'd like you to do everything you can to restore your relationship with that person. But if that person refuses to be restored, I want you to treat him like an unbeliever. I want you to forgive him even though he doesn't deserve it. So you can take two or three people together and agree with heaven. The, the goal isn't to agree with one another. God is the conductor. He's conducting the symphony. The word symphonia, agreement. God's the conductor, and he's conducting the symphony. And it's the song of the lamb. It's the song of the lamb, you know? The lamb was slain for forgiveness. I don't know if you're getting that. The point is, and then Jesus makes this point, like, you have no reason to, for, to, to carry unforgiveness in your life. Don't matter how much you've been offended, because you're the guy that owed the king a million dollars. You're the guy in the story that owed the king a million dollars. So you're like, okay, I tried. I brought my friends. I, I, I brought them before the elders. I brought them before the church. And he still won't repent. Jesus said, okay, then just forgive him anyway because that's the way I forgave you. I forgave you when you didn't deserve it. That's a good word right there, and I'm right about that. So who has bitterness in their heart? You'd like to come and get this. Uh, wrong time to uh, yell. No, I was kidding about that, all right? Can I have a hug? Can you have a hug? Yes, you can. Can I have an offering? Yeah. Okay. That's why it's called a prophet. <laughs> uh, I never could spell. Anyway, um, uh, this is a good book called Developing a Supernatural Lifestyle. It's one of my favorite books, and I wrote it. <laughs> And it's, uh, it's actually about developing a supernatural lifestyle. That's why I called it Developing a Supernatural Lifestyle. I thought it was a good name for the book because that's what it's about. A Practical Guide to a Life of Signs and Wonders and Miracles. A Practical Guide. That's kinda, I didn't write that part. <laughs> yes, I'm practically supernatural. I don't know why, but supernatural people never seem very practical. They're like, we can buy that building for $10 billion. We don't have the money. Well, practically, we can. (laughs) I practically paid for it. (laughs) 
I almost got it paid for right before the, they repossessed it. No, joking. Okay, so but I, I want to read you about just uh, 30, 40 pages before we start tonight. Now I want to read you one page because it's what I want to talk about tonight. Let's just pray. Holy Spirit, um, thank you for what you're doing in these people. Lord, have no mercy on these people. Give them pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. More than they ask or think. You know, if you've thought about what you want, God wants to give you more. So if you can ask it or think it, or thunk it, as Brian writes me all the time, if you can thunk it, God wants to do more than that. You can't exaggerate how much God loves you. That's the truth. I know that's true. So Holy Spirit, we're finishing the prayer right now, okay? So Holy Spirit, please don't interrupt. Lord, we just... What was I praying? Seriously, I forgot. I pray that you would give them more than they ask or think. More than they ask or think. Okay, that's good. Amen. Um, let me just read you a page of this, because I want to talk to you about... Um, becoming a history maker. Every so often in the course of history, there are individuals born who defy common reason and statistical explanation. These are the great ones who break the tether of their generational expectations and rise to the high call that seems to echo somewhere far beyond the grave. The prophets of old peered in the future and, and spoke of these violent ones who'd forced their way into kingdom, take hold of heaven, and pull it down to earth. These reigning saints refused to have their exploits be a mere, be a mere reflection of the past but instead break the gravitational barriers of naysayers and doubters, journeying far beyond the boundaries of reasons, reason into places where no one has ever gone before. Ultimately, they capture the prize of the upward call of God that lies in Christ Jesus. These are God's history makers, the Lord's chosen people, His mighty men, His holy nation. Many of us can feel the vacuum of this vortex drawing our hearts into divine destiny. We find our inner man longing, stirring, and burning for the great adventure. Live or die... We must press through the walls of mediocrity and find the promised land of our souls. We live with a passion to be numbered among those who've gained fame in the halls of heaven and are feared among the prison guards of hell. If we're going to walk as God's ruling royalty, it's encumbered upon us to pray unceasingly, give sacrificially, dream unreasonably, serve wholeheartedly, love unashamedly, walk innocently, believe undoubtedly, and live powerfully. These are the qualities of the Bride of Christ in all her glory. She's called to be the most creative force on the face of the earth. Therefore, we must, not be, we must not allow ourselves to be known for our boxes. That is famous for what we don't do because of our righteous constrictions. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and Benjamin Franklin had certain moral values that restrained their behavior. But they were famous for what they did, not for what they didn't do. It'd be tragic if the most creative people on the face of the earth allowed themselves to be reduced to Renikops guarding a box, the Ark of the Covenant, that God vacated more than 2,000 years ago. The truth is, if we don't take our rightful place in the earth, we will relegate sinners, void of the mind of Christ, barred from the wisdom of the ages, and wandering in utter darkness to be in the most brilliant minds of our time. If the brightest light in the world belongs to those locked in darkness, how great would our darkness in the world be? 
Something's fundamentally wrong with this picture. But this is our brain on religion. Religion is like kryptonite to Superman. Religion can conform the most righteous reigning saints into mindless zombies, repeating someone else's convictions they don't even understand themselves. Let me just read you a page towards the end of this. It's only about ten pages long. The world's crying out in distress, and we must not miss this Kairos moment, the opportunity of the ages. In the late 60s, the Beatles took America by storm. In a few short years, the four boys from Liverpool altered the course of our nation's history. And soon after, the world was swept into the wake of their anointing. And all the while, the boys were singing, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't long before the Fab Four started to experience a crisis in their own souls. And they began to, to sing out in desperation, help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anyone's help in any way. But now those days are gone, and I'm not so self-assured. Now I find I've changed my mind, and I've opened up the doors. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. I do appreciate you coming around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? John Lennon wrote that song when he was strung out on heroin. And he said that he used to sing that song over himself to bring peace to his soul. Let me just finish this last paragraph. But their, their cry for help fell on deaf ears in the sanctuary of hope, and soon they were calling Hare Krishna, their sweet Lord. The church can't afford to fall asleep in the harvest today as we've done so many times in the past. We are not supposed to reflect our culture. We've been commissioned to transform it. Would anyone like this? I'm married. I know the power of womanhood. I am woman. Watch me roar. That's how I've stayed married. Um, I was flying home from someplace about... You know, so I can't even remember. My, my trips all run together. I was, I was telling Steve Thompson, I am so bad at dates, times... And places. I wake up in a hotel and I can't even remember where I'm at. I'm like, okay, where am I? And where's the toilet? <laughs> you talk to Bob Jones. Anybody ever heard Bob Jones before? Bob Jones is like, on October 27th at 6 o'clock in 1972, the Lord spoke to me. I'm like, you remember the date? I can't even remember the year. I tell stories, I'm like, you know, 10 years ago, and Kathy's like, when I, when I sit down, she's like, honey, that was 25 years ago. I'm like, seriously? Wow. I live in the timeless zone. The only reason we wear a watch in our church is to see if the date changed. We live in eternity. And we preach the eternal gospel. Anyway, I was flying home from someplace... Someplace, somewhere. <laughs> and um, I, was, I was just about to fall asleep, and the, the Lord said, I want you to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Um, and the Lord said, you've done the dove thing really well, but you don't know anything about serpents. And he said, I want you to study the ways of serpents so that you can emulate their ways and undermine their purposes. And it began a whole new season in my life. This is probably about a year and a half ago. And I began to realize that the Lord wanted not just overt ministry, but he wanted covert ministry. 
He wanted, us, he wanted to knead us into society to, in a way that we begin to leaven the whole loaf, if you will. That we begin to have an effect on society by the fact that we're kneaded into society. And um, I, I shared this when I was here last time. But the Lord told me that we're in an apostolic age. And, I, and, um, and that we're moving um, into this new dimension. I should probably just, just slow down for a minute and say this because... Um, you, you won't have any context for what I'm going to share tonight. The Lord said we're in an apostolic age. And the nature of apostles, you know, when Jesus named his learners, his disciples, leaders, when he promoted them, it's interesting that he didn't call them, you know, priests because there was the whole priestly order. He didn't call them patriarchs because there was 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament. He didn't call them prophets. There was a the whole prophetic order. Uh, he didn't call them rabbis. He called them apostles. And I've taught this when I was here last time. The word apostle comes from, actually comes from the Greeks, but the Romans picked up this idea of, um, of apostles when they were started conquering. You know, the Romans were very much like Hitler. You know, they were conquering. Their idea was to conquer the world. And they would conquer cities, and when they would go back, to, let's say they'd conquer three cities, and when they go back to the first city they conquered, the people would be back to their old ways. And you know that saying, when you're in Rome, you do as the... It's interesting... Everybody in the world knows that saying. When I'm in Africa, I went to Africa and I said, when you're in Rome, and they, I said, do you know what, what, what the rest of that is? And they repeated it in their own language. You do as the Romans do. Interesting. Well, that saying came out of that era. When you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And the Romans said, why are we conquering cities, but we're not culturizing people? And so the Romans took on this Greek idea of apostles. And what they did is they appointed uh, people, uh, uh, some of their generals, they, they called them apostles, they, and what they would do is they would send this, these envoys into the cities that they conquered. So they would conquer a city, the, the head of that conquering uh, military general would be called an apostle, and with the apostle they would send philosophers and teachers and governmental people so that as they conquered they would culturize. You know, it was Napoleon said the object of war is victory, but the object of victory is occupation. So they, would, so they would conquer and culturize, conquer and culturize, so that when they're in Rome, they would do as the Romans did. And the word apostle means sent one, but it means to be sent to reproduce what you were sent from. Until what you were sent to looks like what you were sent from. So Jesus said, you are my apostles. He said, you know those guys are always trying to get us to act like Romans? Yeah, you are my apostles. And then he gives them an apostolic prayer. It's the only prayer that we, he... You know, we call it the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next part? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, that's an apostolic prayer. See, here's your, here's your, this is your job, apostles, that you would make earth like heaven. You're seated in heavenly places, and the goal is for you to look around heaven and reproduce it in earth until the earth looks like heaven. And that's why, the, you know, uh, Revelation says this, the kingdoms of this world has become what? The kingdoms of our God. And Revelation, was it 21, says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming, what? Down out of heaven. I saw the new Jerusalem. See, the, the emphasis in the Bible isn't you going up. It's him coming down. And our job isn't to, our job isn't to look up. Our job is to get the kingdom to come. I don't know if you got all that. Our job, I shared this in one of the sessions uh, today, but Jesus said, I will build the church. 
He said, you extend the kingdom 147 times. He said, go over where I preach the kingdom. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and say, the kingdom's come near you. It's kind of crazy because he said, I'll build the church, you extend the kingdom. We reverse roles. We build the church and wonder who's extending the kingdom. And the idea of the kingdom is that the king, it means the king's dominion, that the king would have dominion in the earth. The goal, so we're living in this apostolic age, and the goal of this apostolic age is that the kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you, are you with me at all? Okay, you're giving me that turlock, you do that turlock thing to me, like, I'm in a trance thing. So I need, I need feedback, okay? Okay. Okay. Hey, I was all in an all-black church about a month ago or so. <laughs> Exactly. Come on, baby. Teach these people how to... That's it. Man, I could say... I said, hey, you know, I'm about to preach. You're like, yeah! All right! I'm like, I like this. I could move here. (laughs) Guys need a senior pastor? So, So, we're in this apostolic age, and the goal is for heaven to come until earth looks like heaven. Did I say right? Earth looks like heaven. And, um, and so there, I feel like the Lord's given us strategies that we, um, that where we can, we can actually, the Lord wants to knead us into society in a way that causes society to change. And I think that we're moving from um, invasion to invitation. See, I, I think we're moving from invasion and intrusion to invitation. In other words, I think the world's going to invite us in. I think that we need to become a benefit to our society, so that actually they go, hey, we need another church here. You know what's, um, you know what's kind of startling to me? Uh, I just wrote a book called um, Heavy Rain. It's about uh, cultural transformation. And so I did some, um, I, I studied a little bit, um, some you know, statistics, cultural statistics. Um, and what's really interesting is, do you know in America, the churches that have, the highest percentage of Christian church participation. In other words, the, the societies, the, the cities that have the largest portion of people going to a Christian church have the worst social statistics. What's that tell you? That gathering people and transforming societies are not congruent. Putting butts in a seat on Sunday morning does not change your city. In other words, the more people that go to church in a, in a city, the, 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 the worse the social statistics become. It's like church has become a huddle. It's really difficult to be ready for the jungle when you train in the zoo. I think we've domesticated the line of the tribe of Judah... And we have this idea that our job is to keep our people safe. We're like, come to our church, we'll keep you safe. It's like, what the heck are you going to do when you leave church after two hours? It doesn't occur to us that God is the one who put two trees in the garden. In other words, God said, good tree, bad tree, and God is the one who gave people a choice. See, religion saws down the second tree and thinks we're doing everybody a favor. Jesus, <laughs> you're not getting this. 
Jesus made wine for people who were already drunk. That's what the original text says. He made wine for people who were already drunk. Was Jesus promoting drunkenness? Oh, how about this one? Jesus says right before he's crucified, right before, on the night that he's betrayed, he tells the disciples, he says, get swords, sell your coats and get swords. Remember this? So Peter goes, hey, there's two swords right here. Jesus goes, that's enough. Two swords is enough. We know Peter ends up with one of them, which is, which is already, we know that's a problem already. A few hours later, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And what does, Je- what does Peter do? He uses the sword. And he cuts this guy's ear off. Now, he's a fisherman. You know he wasn't trying to cut the guy's ear off. You know he's aiming for his head. Which I think would have been really cool if he would have cut the guy's head off. Because Jesus, you know, Jesus puts the guy's ear back. And I think it would have been really cool if you're like, <sighs> Peter, what the heck? Sorry, dude. Wouldn't that have been a cool miracle? But I mean, it's already pretty cool because Peter cuts the guy's ear off with the sword and, and Jesus is all, Peter, sorry, buddy. Peter, what are you doing? Oh, you said get the sword. I never said use it. Listen, you said get the sword. You said, sell coats, get the sword. Two hours later, we're attacked. I used the sword you told us to get. Now I'm in trouble. See, it doesn't occur to us that God creates opportunities he doesn't want us to take. Did you get that? God creates opportunities. Why, why would God do that? Because the only way you can get a reward is to have a choice. Remember he says he's coming back and his reward is with him? See, in order to, in order to get a reward for not getting drunk, you have to op- have the opportunity to get drunk. In order to get a reward for not cutting the guy's head off, you have to have the ability to do you have to be powerful enough to defend yourself and then not defend yourself. Peter didn't get a reward that night. Whoever got the other sword evidently did. See, God put two trees in the garden because in order for you to have a choice to love God, you have to have a choice to disobey Him. It's good, all. This guy's this is like a black church now. I like this. That's right. <laughs> I'm changing your culture right here. This is going to be the best place to preach in the world. I'll be inviting myself back to this place. You know, David, um, David's anointed king. And he doesn't become king for like 15, 14 to 17 years later. And the king, the guy who is anointed king, God takes the anointing from him and puts it on David and says to David, you're going to be king. And then he gives, he gives David this prophetic word. He says, you can do to Saul anything that you want. I'm going to give him into your hands. Do to him anything you want. And then he ends up, I think it's 1 Samuel, something like 1 Samuel 22. David is in a cave with his men. Saul's trying to kill him. You remember this story? 
And Saul comes into the, into the cave to go to the bathroom. He doesn't know David's in there. And one of David's men turns to David and goes, David, this is that. And he repeats the prophetic word. I'm going to give your enemy into your hand. Do to him whatever you wish. And he says, kill him. And David says, no, I would not touch God's anointed. And remember, he cuts off a piece of, the, of Saul's garment. And then, and then uh, Saul repents and you know, goes, gets back in his right mind for a little while. And then about, I don't know how long later, six months later or so, he goes crazy and he's after David again. And David is like, he, he's chasing David with all the armies of Israel. And David's just barely staying ahead of him. And finally, David ends up on the top of this mountain. And he turns to Abishi, one of his mighty men, and he says, let's go down there and meet Saul. And Abishi's like, let's do it. They get down to the camp, and it says that all the armies of Israel are asleep because the Lord had caused the sound sleep to fall upon them. Like they are the first people slain in the Spirit in the Bible. All of the armies of Israel are asleep because, listen to this, this is the important part, God put them to sleep. And so Abishai's down there with them, and Saul's asleep, and his bodyguard's asleep, and the spear, the bodyguard's spear is right there by Saul's head. And Abishai says, let me just take this spear, and I'll just thrust it to his head just once. <laughs> for, for the Lord said, I will give your enemy into your hand, do to him whatever you wish. And David says, I will not touch God's anointed. Takes a spear. Later on, when the armies wakes up, David, the army wakes up. David says, "Saul, I had you." What did God do? He created opportunity. He didn't want David to take. See, David had a heart after God, not just because he did worship twenty-four hours, but because he knew that he knew that God oftentimes created opportunities, and he was looking to see if he had a real, if he had a man that could lead by the heart. Are you with me at all? See, I think the word shrewd, it's, he says, uh, Matthew ten sixteen. Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. The word shrewd comes from the word to think. I think that's the prophetic declaration for this season. Think. Try it. Let's just let's experience it for a second. Just have one. Just try it. Some of you are like, I hear rusty gates. See, because we're moving out of denominationalism. The Lord told me this like 15 years ago. He said, we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. Ask me what that means. I said, what does that mean? And the Lord said, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree, and they divide when they disagree. He said, they gather when they agree, and they divide when they disagree. But in apostleships, people rally around fathers, friends, uh, around fathers, mothers, and families. In other words, the core reason why people go to church in denominational, how many know denominational, divided nations? How many know you're a Protestant? The word comes from the word what? Protester. Do you know what Mar when Martin Luther, what, what he protested? He wasn't protesting social justice issues like abortion or, or women's rights. He was, protesting, he was protesting doctrinal stances. Are you following me at all? In other words, 
Martin Luther, I'm not saying he should or shouldn't have left. I'm, I don't have an opinion about that. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. But I am saying that Protestantism was born in a protest over doctrine. When we didn't agree, we left. Now, I'm not Catholic, but how many times has the Catholic Church split? I said never, but a Catholic historian wrote me about three years ago and said three times. I'm like, okay, three times in what, 2,000 years? How many times has the Protestant Church split? This month. <laughs> what do they call the leaders of their, of Catholic, of their individual Catholic churches? Father. I know, I'm not Catholic, you know, or anything like that, but... <laughs> I'm saying people, the Catholics go, they, they, they go to church for a different reason than you go to church. Than, than Protestants go to church. Now, what I'm getting at is this. Is that we... Do you believe that you have the mind of Christ? How many believe that when you receive Jesus, you got a brain transplant? How many, how many believe that 1 Corinthians 12, that there is actually a gift of wisdom? You have the gift of wisdom and the mind of Christ. How many believe that you actually are seated in heavenly places, and it's not a philosophy or a theology, it's actually a reality. You actually are seated in heavenly places, which gives you, which gives you timeless perspective. Remember Revelation chapter 4, John, Jesus said to John, the apostle John, come up here. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. In other words, the, your, 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 your stances give you, your, your heavenly stances give you timeless perspectives. How many believe that? How many believe that you have Ephesians chapter 3, that you have the manifold wisdom of God? That you're going to teach principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God? Okay, well just think about it. How many believe that you are a new creation, and you actually have a new heart also. You'd be given a new heart and a new mind. So think about it. You have the mind of Christ. You're seated, you're seated in heavenly places, so you have timeless perspectives. You have the gift of wisdom. You have the manifold wisdom of God. And the Creator who happens to create, who happened to create everything lives inside of you. True? Then, ask, then, then you need then you have to ask yourself a question. Why is it that Christians are not leading every area of society? If, those, if that is true, then you have to ask yourself, listen, is that true or are those philosophies? Like, is that, is that a reality? Like, is it true that Christians should be ten times wiser than someone who doesn't yet know the Lord? I, I mean, wouldn't that be true? Wouldn't it be true that you have an, an advantage, if Daniel was ten times wiser than all the magicians, wouldn't it be true if the least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest in the Old Testament, that you would be a hundred times, that you would have a hundred times greater advantage than anybody who doesn't know the Lord? Then why aren't we leading every area of society? See, that's a question that, that I think bears asking and answering. And and I think I have an answer, at least partial. See, in denominationalism, when you think, you create conflict. Because, see, the idea in denominationalism, we gather when we agree, and we divide when we disagree. How do we keep, if I'm the leader of a denomination, I'm not talking about denominations, I'm talking about the ism. It's like communism, socialism, are you with me? The ism. See, 
If we gather when we agree and divide when we disagree, then how many know disagreement is an enemy to denominational churches? What causes people to disagree? Well, the first thing is you have to have a thought. See, people who don't think don't disagree. I taught in the first session, um, I, Jesus said, John 15, I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know, his slave does not know what his master was doing. Remember, how many of you were in that session? A slave does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends for all things I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. And in, the, in that session, we talked about that friendship releases revelation. All things I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. Like, revelation is not something that you gain through laborious study. It's something you gain through a change in relationship. When you move from slavery to friendship, you open the door to revelation in your life. Are you with me? See, what I'm getting at is that denominationalism keeps you in slavery. Because slaves do not know what the master's doing. What, what's the highest value of, uh, what's the highest value that you have in slavery? Obey. And I think that most of our churches are slave camps where we're lear- we learn to do what we're told. Because nobody, no shepherd wants his, his flock to think because if you think, if you have a thought, you can have a different one than me. And if you have a different one than me, guess why we're, guess why we're together? We're bound together because we agree. In other words, conflict is viewed as a negative in, a, in denominationalism. That's why it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. How do sheep go astray? It doesn't say like wolves or like dogs. It says like sheep. All of us like sheep have gone astray. How do sheep go astray? They watch each other's butt and there's a shepherd up front that knows where he's going. (laughs) Well, Mildred, we must be going the right way because 99 butts can't all be wrong. You know what I'm saying? It's true. I mean, listen, if you can get, you know, 800 people to drink poison Kool-Aid after you go, the Kool-Aid's poison. I mean, you, you know, you're not talking about the brightest minds who have ever graced the planet. And what I'm getting at is this, is that if you have the mind of Christ and all those advantages, then why are you not leading every area of society? I would say it's because somebody turned your brain off. And it's keeping you from the creativity, innovation, and invention that you have been graced with. And when he said, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, the word serpent comes from the word to think. I think the first, I think part of the word of the Lord is think. Like we need to create cultures where people can disagree. See, I think that the, the, the church basically has, you know, in, in the uh, business world, I grew up in the business world, in manufacturing, you have research and development, and you have the manufacturing department, right? Like an iPhone. You know, in, in the manufacturing side of, of the business, you want to have zero defects. You don't want anybody, you don't want any, you want every phone to work 100% of the time, right? You want every phone to work 100% of the time. Seems like there ought to be another line in there, but it's the only one I can think of. You want zero defects. But if you take that core value and you superimpose it over the research and development department, like don't ever make a mistake, guess what happens? You don't ever create anything. 
What I'm getting at is that in order for us to move in this new dimension, we have to create a culture where it's all right to make mistakes. Where it's all right to dream. It's all right to try things. It's all right to make a mess. Where there's no oxen, the manger is clean, but much increase comes with the oxen. What's in the manger when the oxen are there? A bunch of crap. If we're going to stun the world with innovation, invention, if we're going to lead the world, we have, to ha- we have to create think tanks where people can be wrong and still be all right. Like where people get rewarded for having a new idea, where they don't get punished for... You know. In other words, we need people to have choices. We need to create a culture where people have choices. It's religion that takes away choices. We've domesticated people. We've castrated the stallions and wonder why no one ever reproduces. We need to move from producing to reproducing. That's a good word. I believe this, what I'm saying right now. Here's a great quote. In times of change, learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. In times of change, learners, people who can think, inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. (laughs) You guys are good. You're encouraging me. Isaiah 43.3, I'm going to give you treasures of, of darkness, hidden wealth in secret places, so that you would know that I am the Lord who calls you by your name. See, I think that, that part of the struggle is that denominationalism doesn't just, it doesn't just affect the way we relate to each other in church. It affects the way we relate to people in the world. See, the goal... Just the way we evangelize. The goal of denominationalism is to get people to agree with you. <laughs> oh boy, it's going to get ugly now. <laughs> See, we think people get, a, get saved by agreeing with us. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you agree with these things, you're in the kingdom. So we can only have a relationship with people who we have an agenda to get them to agree with us. For instance, if I have a friend who's a homosexual, I have to let all my friends know that, listen, I'm trying to get him to pray the prayer. I don't, have, I don't have permission to have a relationship with somebody who I am not trying to get to agree with me. Think about in, in, in politics. If you're a Republican, you are, listen, it's got, the, I'm telling you, poli- the political spirit is the denominational spirit. If you're a Republican, the goal is to agree with the whole Republican agenda, and please don't think outside of our agenda or you're in trouble. So you become loyal to a party's agenda instead of having the freedom to think. I have a word about that, but I'll tell you later. So in denominationalism, the way that we relate to the world... See, 
I think that the world relates to us like we're car salesmen. You know when you, come to, uh, when you get on a car lot and the guy comes up and he's like, Oh, those are awesome jeans. Where'd you get those? You know, you know the salesman is like, Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's beautiful. Well, I've never seen teeth like that. <laughs> you know, stuff like that, you know. And you're like, you know that, it, that, you know that that person has, he doesn't care about your jeans or how white your teeth are. He's trying to sell you a car. Is it agenda? It's like going to an Amway conference. And what I'm getting at is this. What would happen if we just loved people? No, I mean, listen. No, if we had permission just to love people without an agenda. It's interesting the way that Jesus evangelizes. Because the guy comes to him and says, what do I have to do to be saved? And he goes, well, what does the law say to you? He goes, well, it says this, this, this. He goes, well, do that. You'll be fine. <laughs> what? Um, you already know what to do. Just do that. You'll be okay. You'll, if you keep those laws, you'll be fine. Well, I've done that, and I'm not fine. Oh, you want more? Yeah. Well, sell everything you have and follow me. Well, I can't do that. You asked. <laughs> We're answering questions no one's ever asked. Yeah. I had, um, I was, um, was teaching at the school of worship last year. And as I went to the uh, podium to teach, the Lord said, you're going to prophesy before you teach. I'm like, okay, what's the prophecy? He said, I'll tell you when you get to the podium. I'm like, I hate that. When I was younger, it was exciting. I'm 55. I'm like, Oh, Lord, I don't need to stress. <laughs> Thou knowest. So, so I'm walking to the podium, and I'm like, what's the word? The Lord says, I'll give it to you when you get to the podium. I said, all right. So I get to the podium. I said, who do you want me to, who do you want me to prophesy over? Because I'm thinking he wants me to. He said, everybody. I'm like, oh, no, this ain't going to work. He said, no, I, have, I want you to give a word to, a, a corporate word. I said, okay, what's the word? He said, the mascot, the prophetic mascot for this season is no longer the eagle, but the owl. I said, okay. So I'm thinking, I don't know what that means, but whatever it is, I'll just say it. So I said, the mascot for this, for this season, the prophetic mascot for this season that we're in, this epic season we're in, is no longer the eagle, but it's the owl. Because the owl is nocturnal. The owl lives in the darkness, can see through the darkness, and knows who's who. As I shared that, Jen Johnson ran up to the podium, and she says, um, give me the mic, give me the mic. I said, what is it? She said, she, and she tells the story. She said, yesterday, I think it was the day before that, she said, uh, this guy was coming to school. He's, he's just auditing, auditing the class. He's coming to school, and on the way to school, he's on this narrow road, and there was an owl sitting in the middle of the road. And he said he tried to get around it, but the owl wouldn't move. The owl just sat there. He pulled his car right up to it, and the owl just sat there. It's looking up. So he got out of the car, and he put his hand out, and the owl jumped up on his finger, and he put it on his shoulder, and, and she said, I got him bringing it to school. I'm like, wow, this is kind of cool. Well, the next day, my son Jason and I, we, go, we fly to Los Angeles, and um, I, I have a book called The Sexual Revelation. Uh, Sexual Revelation. <sighs> 
That's my next book, Sexual Revelation. Woo! I'll tell you what, you married couples are going to like that. Some ideas you never thought of. Kathy's all. Sexual revolution. <clears throat> our intel, uh, our uh, attorney, our intellectual property attorney, he's a friend of ours. He's a Christian. His name is Brock. He comes to Bethel. He reads my book. He's, he's, uh, he's from L.A. also. He reads my book on the way home on a plane. He calls me and he goes, this book is amazing. This book's changing my life. Actually, the book was called Purity, A New Moral Revolution. It was a, a white, had a white cover. He goes, this is amazing. And he said, I have a friend of mine who is the star of a VH, VH1 show called Second Chance of Love 2. You, ever, you know what VH1 is? VH1 is like MTV on steroids. I didn't even know what VH1 was. Honestly, I thought it was a radio station. And I go, oh, that's cool. What's VH1? He goes, you don't know what VH1 is? I go, no. I mean, you know, it's not a action movie or football game or basketball game, I pretty much don't watch it. And he's like, well, VH1, and, he's, and he tells me what VH1 is, which he's like, it's like MTV, but it's like worse. I'm like, okay. And he goes, the star of the show, is the, of that show, it's a dating show, like a reality dating show. And the star of that show is a guy named Ahmad Real, they call him Real, Ahmad Real Givens. He's an African-American guy. And he is... Um, He's about a year ago, he was raised as a Christian, kind of fell away, and about a year ago, he had an encounter with God. And, he, and he, Brock is telling me, and he's told, he told me a week ago, I want to do something on VH1. I want to somehow change the atmosphere of, of VH1. And I, want, I, I feel like I was called to change the world. So he says, so Brock's talking to me on the phone. He goes, I want to give him this book and see if he can get this book on VH1. So he gives Ahmad the book. And Ahmad reads the book in a day and says, this book has changed my life. And I want, to, um, I want to get it on VH1. So anyway, so that's kind of the short story, the background. So my son Jason and I, we fly to L.A. to meet with Ahmad, who we've, you know, obviously we've never met before, never seen him before, his manager and our attorney, who's also his attorney. So we're sitting in this uh, kind of board meeting room with Brock, kind of leading the room, and then there's five of us in there. And, uh, and Ahmad's kind of like... You know, he's got the piercings and he's, you know, he's got long, you know, he's cool, right? He's got chains. He's got the stuff, you know? And, uh, and you know, and I'm like, I'm a 55-year-old man, you know? My, my son tells me how to dress. Serious, he takes me shopping. He goes, Dad, you look like a nerd. Come on, we need to go shopping. <laughs> we went shopping the store, the, the store called The Buckle. We were in there for about two hours, my son and I. We walked out with one bag, $850, two pairs of jeans, and three shirts. I know. I said, tell mom, you made me do this. Yeah, and the jeans were all ripped up. I'm, I'm paying $150 for a pair of jeans that have holes in them. I'm, I think I could do this cheaper. Anyway, so we're sitting with Ahmad and his manager, his manager's name Steve, and we're sitting there, and we're, we're having this conversation about, because the intellectual property rights of, of our books are not owned by us, so we have to, you know, it's just a big old, it's not that easy, you know? And so we're making this deal with Ahmad to get the book on VH1, and, 
And uh, we're sitting across the table from him. First time I ever met him. We're probably there for maybe, maybe 10 minutes. And as, as I'm looking at Ahmad, I see the word um, prophet to the nations written over him. And I'm like, well, this is kind of weird. I don't know if he's charismatic, even believes in prophets. But it's like superimposed over him. I don't know if any of you have this, like the way God you know, talks differently to different people. But when stuff like this happens to me, I can't really have a conversation with somebody because this thing's like right there. It's like if someone has a booger in their nose and you're trying to have a... You're trying to like talk to them and you're like... <laughs> trying to not... You know, you ever had someone have someone like run it and then you're like... Do I tell them or do I not, you know? So, we, we, so we're about 10 minutes into this conversation, you know, about... The, it's kind of a business conversation. And I go, hey, time out, time out. I tell Brock, time out. He's like, what? I go, I can't do this anymore, man. I can't do this. I said, Ahmad, I don't know if you like, know anything about prophecy or anything like that. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know about that. I go, well, I see this thing written over you like you're a prophet to the world, like you're a prophet to the nations. You're like Daniel. And I give him this word. And I say, I say when you were, when you were uh, in your mother's womb, your mother almost lost you to some kind of a rare disease. And now there's tears running down his eyes. And he goes, yeah, and he, he stops me and he goes, my mother had, and he named some disease I've never heard of. He almost died in the womb. In fact, they didn't expect him to live, and they created this problem in his body, this whole thing. And, and so, and I go, yeah, and God has called you like a Daniel. Like, he wants you to go into the deepest, darkest places, and you're, you're you know, you're like, God's like disguising you. And, he, and I gave him this whole word about disguising him, and I said, and he's been giving you a sign. He's been giving you some sort of sign. And before I can go on, he goes, yeah. He goes, this really weird thing's happening. Now, I haven't said anything about the day before about the owl, right? I, I don't really intend to. And he goes, this is really weird thing happened. I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, that sign thing you're talking about. I said, what is it? He goes, he goes we were in a city three months ago, and when Steve and I are walking down the street, and a white owl, a white owl comes down, and it flies right between us and flies off. Ha, huh, Steve? He says, ha, huh, Steve? Steve's like, yeah. He goes, it was weird. He goes... He goes, then we were in another city doing a concert, because he also has a group called the Stallionaires. He goes, yeah, it's the name of the group. And uh, he goes, we're in this other city doing a concert, and he says, we're driving along, and this white owl uh, in another city flies down and almost hits the windshield of our car and flies off. And he goes, and then last month we were in a city, and he says, we're walking down the street in this another city, and this owl comes down and flies right over our head, another white owl in the city. And he goes, it freaked me out. <laughs> so I tell him about what happened the day before, about this whole, the Lord says he's the mascot's the owl. So anyway, so about um, eight months ago, I'm telling this story in New Zealand, that story, right? And I get to the place where I'm talking about Ahmad, and Ahmad's got the... And I have my cell phone in my pocket, my iPhone, which is the only real phone, in my pocket. <laughs> We're moving from glory to glory, from PC to Mac. Well, I guess that's, that's actually sin to glory, isn't it? <laughs> so I have a... I have my iPhone in my pocket, and when someone texts, I had it on vibrate. When someone texts you, it vibrates. So it's vibrating, and it doesn't stop vibrating until you stop it. So, so it's vibrating while I'm preaching, and I'm telling the story about the owl and all that. So I, I, I'm thinking, well, I should have turned my phone off. So I take it out, and I put it on the podium, and I'm, pr I'm still telling the story 
and I'm, and I'm looking over at the phone and kind of reading, and I notice that when I look over at the text message, it's from Ahmad. So I hit the little button, and it comes up, and I'm like, yeah, and, I'm, and, and Ahmad saw this, and I look down, and, and Ahmad has texted me while I'm telling his story. I just saw the fourth owl fly right over me. Fourth owl fly over me. That's wild. Isn't that a hoot? (laughs) Oh, no, corny, I get it. In Daniel chapter 1, let me just um, read you this a little bit. We're we're almost done. Daniel chapter 1 should have you out of here by morning. It says this, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. You know, Daniel is the story of, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian king, goes into Israel, destroys the country, destroys the temple, and takes a whole bunch of guys, POWs, right? And Daniel happens to be, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego happen to be four of them. You know the story? Okay, so they're taking POWs, they're, they're you know, they're, they're uh, castrated, made eunuchs, you know, not, not a good life, not having a good life. And, um, and they're brought into the king's service. And it says this, that Daniel decides, verse 8, I think it is, chapter 1. Now Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And it goes on like that. And you know that story. Um, and so then it goes on to say that he finally comes into the king's service. And when the king's interviewing, interviewing the four guys, he says this, verse 17. As... For the four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature, wisdom, and Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. There's one more verse I want to Verse 20. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians. I, I said, I said codgers. <laughs> In a, in a, in a uh, conference I was in the other day, and I said, and codgers, and Danny comes up, and he's like, it's conjurers. Codgers are old guys who are grouchy. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? If I was a conjurer, I would be a codger. <laughs> he found them ten times better than all the magicians and codgers who, conjurers, gosh, <laughs> in his realm. And, and Daniel continued in his service to Cyrus the king. Uh, turn to chapter 4 just for a minute. I want to just give you... I want to kind of just... Chapter 4 of Daniel. Daniel has... Uh, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And in the dream, he sees a tree. How many of you know this story? L- let me just ask you, how many do not know this story? Okay. Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And in this dream, he sees this tree that uh, the branches cover the earth. And there's birds in it, and it kind of goes on like that. It's a lot of detail. And he doesn't know, he wakes up from the dream, and he doesn't know what the dream means. And he brings in all the magicians and all the conjurers, and they try to interpret the dream, and they don't know what the, what the dream means. And then Daniel comes in. Now, one thing I love about this is every time, it's like every time the king has a dream, Daniel's always comes in last. I love that. Daniel's always late. I think it's prophetic to be late. I'm not sure. <laughs> but listen to this. It says, um, verse 19. Are you there? 
Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled. The king you know, brings him in and says, what does, you know, what does this mean? What does this, what does this dream mean? So Daniel's interpreting the dream. The king's just told him the dream. And then Daniel, whose name is, is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded and said to Belshazzar, Do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. I missed one verse someplace. Let me see if I have it right here. Oh, yeah, verse 8 of the same chapter. But finally Daniel came in before, the, before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. This is Nebuchadnezzar recounting the story. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream." Which I have had and seen among its inter- and and uh, and seen along with its interpretation. And then Daniel goes on in verse 19 and says, "O king, I wish this was about your enemies and not about you." I, I want to make a couple of points and we'll be done. The first thing, the first point I want to make is this: is that Daniel is not a prophet. Daniel is the chief of the magicians. His name is changed to Belshazzar. I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that right. And the name that he takes on, he takes on the name of Nebuchadnezzar's God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not the names of the four boys, of the three boys who came into Babylon. That was the name the king gave them, and it's the name, it's three names of three Babylonian gods, because the Babylonians are polytheists. They believe in multiple gods. Are you with me? Daniel is not a prophet in, in Babylon. He is a magician in Babylon. He takes on the king's God's name, the name of the king's God. But he won't eat the king's food, and he refuses to not pray three times a day. And here's what I'm getting at, is that we need to learn how to customize without compromise. And what happens is, is that Daniel builds a relationship with four kings. And ultimately, see, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, conquers Israel, and he thinks he has destroyed the, is, the is Israeli culture. But, what he, but he, what he doesn't realize is that he has arrested four boys, but God has actually arrested him. And little by little, through prophetic declarations and dream interpretations and the supernatural power of God, those four boys began to dismantle the Babylonian kingdom. How did they do it? They came in as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. They were needed into society to the place where they, Daniel said, call me whatever you want as long as you let me love you and as long as you let me bring the power of God. You'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar calls him, the, the, he says, I know that the, ho- the spirit of the holy gods, plural, gods is, among, is in you. Nebuchadnezzar has an experience with God right after this. Daniel interprets the dream and says, listen, that that tree that got cut down, you're the tree. And because of your arrogance and pride, God's going to cut you down. But seven years from now, God's going to restore you. But here's what he says to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I wish this dream was about your enemies and not about you. This is the guy who probably killed his family, destroyed his country, castrated him and and his friends to bring him into the king's service. And Daniel said, I wish this dream was about your enemies. 
and not about you. I don't know why, but we have prophets in our day who want to judge people. It's interesting because 1 Corinthians 14 says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment on the prophecies. Instead, we, ju- we pass judgment on people. And we have this idea, we have this idea that people who sin should be judged, but it doesn't occur to us that we did not get in through, we didn't get in through our righteousness, we got in through His. But once we get in, we want everyone else to get in through theirs. And Daniel loved a king who set up statues to himself, worshipped false gods, and so on and so forth. I mean, he made Hitler look like a little street thug. And yet, and yet when God's going to bring judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, who has arrested him and taken him as a POW, he said, I wish this dream was about your enemies and not about you. In other words, he fell in love with the king who he did not agree with. You've got to get this. He was, he was able to serve a king who he didn't agree with, make the king look like a genius, even though he didn't agree with the, the king's ways or who the king served. And ultimately, he won a king, and ultimately, he won a nation. In the sixth chapter, you know, you know Daniel has served, he serves uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he serves his son, he serves Darius, is the next king, that's the king who throws him in the lion's den. By the way, when Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den, he's 93. It's probably why the lions didn't eat him. <laughs> Just the thought. This is a cool story. Darius gets tricked into throwing Daniel in the lion's den because the other magicians and conjurers are jealous of Daniel. Remember this? And they make a decree that anyone who doesn't serve, the, the, uh, doesn't worship yeah, the king, for however many days, gets thrown in the lion's den. You remember this story? And Daniel, you know, prays three times a day, turns toward Jerusalem, and he gets arrested. And the king is really sorry, because now the king knows he's been tricked, right? He throws Daniel in the lion's den, and this is what it says. It's, Dan- it's Daniel chapter 6. It says that Darius fasted all night. That's what I do. It's called a royal fast. I fast all night and I break fast in the morning. (laughs) Isn't that crazy that Darius fasted all night and got credit for it? So listen, I fast. Now I only eat three hours a day. I I figured out I'm fasting like 300 days a year. It's awesome. I'm sure you've noticed. (sighs) It says that Darius fasted all night and at, at the break of dawn, he runs to the, the lion's den. And even before he gets there, he yells, Oh, Daniel, oh, Daniel, was your God, whom you served day and night, able to save you? And listen to these words. Out of the lion's den, he hears, Oh, king, live forever. Live forever. I have a question for you. What would happen if we actually loved people? If we actually had permission to love people we don't agree with. If we actually had permission to serve people and and help them prosper even though they were serving the wrong God. And we didn't feel all this pressure like, you know, like, I got to get them to pray a prayer. Listen, listen, if, if, if Jesus lives in you and your life is not a message, talking won't help.
I have a confession to make. I have a confession to make. You're not going to like this. I love President Obama. No, I mean, I really do. I love him. I didn't vote for him. And I don't agree with him. The, the Lord, um, it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm sorry, in Romans 13, Paul talks about honoring and respecting God's servants, and he names them police officers, governors, mayors, and he said, these are servants of God, that's why you pay taxes. So you pay tithes to spiritual authority, and you pay taxes to natural authority, and God says, they're both my servants. And remember, Paul wrote that letter to Rome, to the Romans, when Nero was their leader. It doesn't occur to us that when we... See, we don't have permission to love someone we don't agree with. (laughs) Do you hear the angels singing? (laughs) I bet that was an iPhone because it sounded saved. That's why it's an Apple. Forget what I was saying. <laughs> Nero, we don't we don't have permission to to help somebody unless we we have a, an agenda to convert them. And we think it's okay to judge people's heart. I had a, a guy write me a letter. This is probably three months ago. A long letter, a long email. Actually came on Facebook, and the email was it was entitled "President Obama is the Antichrist." It wrote me like five pages. I mean, the guy was serious. I wrote him back and I said, "At least it's not the Pope this year." <laughs> See, here's the deal: in denominationalism, we have to demonize people we don't agree with. We don't have permission to help somebody. Unless, we, unless they agree with us. And I just wondered what would happen if we just got released from that pressure and we actually... Think about it. By the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel has now served Nebuchadnezzar for probably about 15 years. The king still doesn't know that Daniel's not a polytheist. He says the, the spirit of the holy gods, plural. Now... If you want to hear the rest of that story, you should read the rest of Daniel 4, because what's interesting is, is that God, you know, Nebuchadnezzar does fall. He loses his mind for seven years. He's like, like goes out in the wilderness, acts like an animal. And at the end of seven years, God restores his mind. And now he knows, and he makes a decree. This is funny. He makes a decree that anyone who doesn't serve the God of Daniel is going to die. What's interesting is he doesn't know the name of the God of Daniel. So who are we supposed to serve? The God of Daniel, whoever that is. You know why? Because Daniel's serving him, but he's not preaching to him. And what happens? He converts a king. He trusts that God has enough power that if he loves him, God will set up circumstances to change him. 
And ultimately, the guy who set up statues to himself serves the God of Daniel. You know this whole political thing? I hate that spirit. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod. That's the political spirit and the religious spirit. And you know what they are? They're both divisive. I, I want to tell you something. I, I, um, I've made this choice that I will think for myself from now on. I will not let Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity or Rush Lembo. It's like those guys. I like listening to those guys, but I have a brain. They don't make my choices for me. I make my choices for me. The Lord's given me responsibility to think. And, um, and I don't have to dislike somebody because I don't agree with their policies. And the fact that I love someone doesn't mean that I agree with their position on abortion or that I think that they're right on the health care issue. I have permission to love people who think differently than me and who I actually think are wrong. The Lord woke me, it's probably been a year and a half ago, I'm really bad at time, Kathy may remember, the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night and he said this to me, if you love President Obama from your heart, I'll let you influence him. And, and this is what he said to me, he said, do not judge his heart, because who are you to judge the servant of another? He said, you can make distinctions, you can, you can judge his policies, but you do not have a right to judge his heart, because you don't know his heart. In fact, the Lord said to me, you don't even know your own heart. That's what the Lord told me. You know, it's so strange. In our society, we make judgments about people that we don't even know, and the media is the one feeding us the information. <laughs> I mean, I've never met President Obama. I've seen him on TV, and the media tells me what to think about what he says. After he gets done talking, what do they do? They have two people come on and tell you what the president just said. You know why? Because they're used to talking to people who don't think. So they have to have somebody come on and tell you what the president just said, and this is what you should think about that. I don't need to listen to the commentary. I heard what the president said. I have a brain. I have people come to me often, and this is the truth. They'll say, you know, I just really feel like, you know, President Obama's heart is wicked. And I'm like, um, I'd, be, I'd watch out for that. I'd watch out for that. Because you, you, don't know, you don't know someone's heart. Well, I know he did this and this and this. I'm saying, well, you know that through the media, who I'm not sure is, their job is to report the news. I think their job is to, is to get great ratings so that they can get advertisements so that they can make money. And bad news sells. So, I know I'm offending you, but you'll get over it. You know, one of the things about owls, you know, the one, this is the, this, I know, I'm almost done. The one thing about owls is this. I think that owls can see through the night. I think that we're going to look at Rahab's who are prostituting themselves and say, there's someone who loves God. I think the goal is to find gold that's in the middle. Hidden treasures, remember Isaiah 45, 3? Hidden treasures in secret places of darkness. 
I think our job is to go in the deepest, darkest places of the planet. Right? We look like serpents. See, I think that we're going to be wolves, I mean sheep in wolves' clothes. That God's needing us into society. And when we get there, our job is to love the people that God has put in places of authority and actually help them succeed whether we agree with them or not. That's another, just a whole new idea. Funny that we love the stories of Daniel and Esther and, and, and Joseph and we don't realize that that's exactly what they did. So, I'd like you to all stand. I have no idea what we're going to do. I just figured things were getting numb. I want to just pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the integrity of Daniel. I pray that as you give us choices, Lord, that that we're a people that you can give choices to and we know your heart. That That we don't use the sword. That we don't get drunk. That we don't eat from the wrong tree. Because we have your heart and your mind. That you can trust us in the deepest, darkest places of the planet. And we put a knife to our throat and do not desire the king's food because we're there to bring the kingdom and not to be infected. Lord, I thank you that we're inoculated from darkness. That, you, that Jesus Christ inoculated us from darkness so that we can go into the deepest places and not be polluted. Lord, I pray that you would give us a pure heart. That you would give us a pure heart and that you would trust us with world leaders with city leaders, with people of influence, that you put in influence, that you would trust us to love them without manipulating them. And Father, I pray that we would be a message so when they've seen us, they've seen the Father. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart to love people, that honestly, that we would be overcome with love for people like President Obama, with, with people in our city, people either the, the up and outers, the down and outers, don't matter where they're at, that we would actually have such a love for people that they couldn't resist us. They would be, that we would be, they'd find us irresistible. To know us is to love us. That we'd actually move by invitation and not through intrusion. That people would invite us in. They'd say, those Christians, I don't, even, I don't even agree with those Christians, but you need them? They, they help me succeed. Lord, let every church in America be committed to the success of its city. We pray for that. That we become an apostolic people. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. <laughs>